0: Hey, okay, a quick favor. We are conducting an audience survey. We'd be really grateful if you could just take a few minutes and answer our survey. Please visit survey.prx.org scene to take the survey today. That's survey.prx.org scene. Thank you.
1: This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company & Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations.
0: Season 5 is made possible in part by listeners who supported our show and by a grant from the International Women's Media Foundation. Hey, Amy, I got a couple of questions for you about where things stand here on planet Earth.
2: Oh, oh boy, this sounds easy.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you are a leading climate journalist. You stay up to speed on the science. You follow the chorus of analysts and observers who size up that science and debate what it means. So question number one, uh, how screwed are we? Is it too late? Just time to resign ourselves to ecological collapse and therefore the end of civilization as we know it?
2: No, 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 no. Nope. No.
0: (laughs) So in other words, it sounds like what you're telling me is no.
2: Yeah, that's right. I I think we really need to embrace sort of a happy medium Or, or maybe not so much happy as gritty between what climate Twitter has deemed the doomers and the folks peddling hopium. Mm. So for a really long time, the climate movement, including climate scientists, did actually a pretty bad job of just being real with people about how dire the situation was and is. I remember actually a few years ago when David Wallace-Wells wrote the magazine piece that became his book, The Uninhabitable Earth. A lot of folks in climate world went kind of nuts about how he was going to send folks into a panicked paralysis. He was giving them this worst case scenario and it was going to end any kind of will to live or do anything at all about climate.
0: Mm. And what that book presents really is the worst case scenario warming of three or four or five or more degrees Celsius that would trigger wide-scale ecosystem collapse. What most scientists seem to be saying now is that we're on track for about two and a half degrees of warming.
2: Right, which is really not great. Uh, We've already lost species and we will lose more. Part of the reason that scientists kind of had this 1.5 degree goal for so long was to stop some of that ecosystem collapse and loss. Mm -hmm. We're already seeing an unstable climate and it will get worse. Sea level has already risen, and Miami Beach will absolutely be underwater in about 30 years. So sugarcoating it for people doesn't really help. And at the same time, encouraging folks to just sort of take their ball and go home, patting down the hatches and wait for collapse. Well, we're not quite there yet. And and frankly, that feels like a really entitled response and and the response of what i would call a bad ancestor <laughs> you know the doomer camp is uh, is perhaps unsurprisingly overwhelmingly white male and rich
0: uh, you don't say but given what you've just said about the changes coming adaptation is something we do need to do right
2: yeah For a really long time, there was this sort of debate raging about mitigation or adaptation. Like we need to either reduce emissions or adapt to a changing climate. And a lot of people saw adaptation as a sort of giving up on emissions reductions. But I think that's kind of dumb. You know, we obviously need to do both. Because the other important thing for folks to understand is that a lot of global warming is already baked in kind of no matter what we do, unless there's a giant breakthrough in negative emissions technology, this thing of, you know, pulling carbon out of the air, because that's just how CO2 works. It's a long-lived greenhouse gas. So warming that we're experiencing now is from emissions that happened, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And so far, we cannot roll back the clock on emissions already in the atmosphere, Although a lot of very wealthy folks are trying very hard to make that happen.
0: You used to hear this phrase carbon capture and sequestration. These days, uh, it seems to be just expressed more often capture and storage. Right. Or people will
2: abbreviate it to CCS a lot. (laughs) And carbon capture and storage could enable emissions reductions. So in an ideal scenario, you'd have a carbon capture device at a power plant or some other kind of big manufacturing facility sucking up emissions right from the smokestack. But that doesn't take care of all emissions, and it doesn't take care of historic emissions. So right now, if you include all of the planned carbon capture projects, we're talking about 0.1% of current emissions. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm skeptical of the hype around this because, you know, of course, it also enables the status quo where burning fossil fuels is considered. And also because what it's mostly being used for right now is something called enhanced oil recovery. Basically, oil companies inject CO2 underground to extract more oil not exactly a climate solution.
0: And yet it's being advertised as a, as a big climate solution.
2: Then there's also what's called negative emissions technology. I mentioned this a few minutes ago. This would actually be able to draw CO2 out of the atmosphere. So that could actually get at some of these historic emissions, CO2 that's just been hanging out for a long time. With carbon storage and negative emissions, the technology has mostly existed for a while, but nobody's figured out how to deploy it at scale and safely And frankly, the idea that we're going to let the oil and gas industry build a bunch of pipelines all over the country for transporting and storing CO2, a gas that can actually poison people if there's a leak, seems terrifying.
0: Just a little. But it seems like the headline here is that it's not too late to save a whole lot of what we depend on and love in this world. And maybe a person can dream, just maybe, we could make things better than they are now, better than they've been, if this emergency pushes us to take big, bold action. Imagine we could have a wilder and healthier living planet than we have now, societies vastly more just and healthy in all kinds of ways than the ones we live in today.
2: And there are actually some ideas and policies being embraced that are a lot less pie in the sky than some sort of giant carbon-sucking vacuum. For one thing, a lot of governments from the local to national level all over the world are getting pretty serious about curbing methane emissions. Mm -hmm. And that's a big deal because, unlike CO2, methane is a super short-lived gas. So if we could get a handle on that, it could reduce temperatures quickly and buy us some time to catch up on decarbonization. We'll get into some more policy stuff in a minute, but first I want you to hear from one of my favorite climate scientists, Dr. Kate Marvel. She's written really eloquently about how we need courage more than hope. And what I like about her is that she is very realistic about climate change. She doesn't sugarcoat anything, but she's not a pessimist about it. I hang on to something she said to me a few years back.
3: I I do have no patience whatsoever for inevitability and apocalyptic narratives. Yeah. Um, Because I know that if we put a bunch of carbon dioxide in the air, it will get hotter and bad things will happen. Droughts, floods, stronger hurricanes forest fires. But I don't know anything about the possible trajectories that human society could take. And because it's human societies that are putting that carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, there are so many different ways in which that society could evolve. Mm -hmm. And some of them are societies that I really want to live in. And some of them are societies that are a nightmare to me. And so I think focusing on creating the kind of society that I want to live in is, is really important right now.
0: We'll have a lot more to say about creating a society we want to live in, in this episode and the next one. But for now, here's my other question, Amy. If we don't act or don't pivot hard enough and fast enough, what is in store for us?
2: Well, when it comes to climate impacts, there really is no we. Some parts of the world will experience much worse consequences than others much sooner. Our international collaborators this season have made that really clear. Yeah. Temperatures increase at different speeds everywhere, and those temperature increases have different effects in different parts of the world. So, in many regions, for example, we've already surpassed that 1.5 degree of warming that scientists and activists have targeted as a limit not to exceed. But in broad strokes, at 1.5 degrees Celsius warming, which we're almost certain to hit globally at this point, about 14% of Earth's population will be exposed to severe heat waves at least once every five years. At 2 degrees warming, that proportion jumps to 37%. And the deadly heat waves India and Pakistan saw in 2015 could become annual occurrences. At two to three degrees of warming, we'll also see widespread drought and water scarcity, with people in river basins, particularly in the Middle and Near East, especially vulnerable. To show you how much difference just a half a degree can make, NASA estimates that limiting warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius would protect 184 to 270 million people from water scarcity That's a lot of people. And then, of course, some people will have the opposite problem. Too much water. Hundred-year floods could become annual occurrences, entire coastal communities and island nations would disappear, and extreme weather disasters will become the norm.
0: Yeah, our episodes from Bangladesh, Nigeria, and Indonesia offered a glimpse of that world today.
2: And we've already wasted so much time, half a century or more since scientists first started sounding the alarm about this. Now, incremental change, so-called moderation, is just not an option. The time for that passed us by in the 1980s and 90s.
0: So this is what scientists and activists are shouting more urgently than ever. It's a genuine emergency now, and we have to act accordingly. From the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University, this is Seen on Radio, season five, The Repair, episode 10, the penultimate episode. I'm John B. Wynn.
2: I'm Amy Westervelt. This time we go deep on the question we raised back in episode one. What will it take to save ourselves? What would repair look like? We start with policy, the actions that governments and other institutions must take now to head off the most disastrous results of climate change.
0: There are so many layers and threads to this, but don't they all add up to this? We need to phase out the burning of fossil fuels and other causes of warming and fast. We've got to push down hard on that curve on the graph, especially and first in the global north, the historic emitter countries that long ago burned way more than our fair share of greenhouse gases right? I keep seeing figures from climate scientists like 8 to 12% emissions cuts per year for this decade and beyond are required to stay below 1.5 degrees of warming. We are emphatically not doing that yet. So here's one more central question for this episode, Amy. How do we do it and what does it look like?
2: I interviewed a range of people to address that from multiple angles. But stay with me, John.
0: Okay, Uh, yes, (laughs) we decided that like with Chen in our last episode of season four, we'll both stick around through these last couple of episodes as we really dig into solutions.
4: You know, back in the 80s, we believed the information deficit model of social change and that if we could only get the information to policymakers, that they would do the right thing. This is Ken
2: Caldera. He's a really well-known climate scientist. His work helped the world understand ocean acidification. Some environmental activists have also criticized him over the years for embracing nuclear, always a hot button issue. But forget all of that stuff because we're not actually talking about science today or even technology. We're talking about the factor that's blocking climate action, political will. Caldera's words to me a few years back have bounced around in my head
4: ever since. And now we see in the age of Trump that it's It's not about information deficit, it's about power relations and people wanting to keep economic and political power, so that just telling people some more climate science isn't going to help anything. You know, I don't understand how social change happens when it challenges the interests of a well-entrenched and powerful minority, and... I mean, it seems to me that that's the central question of how that happens. And it's not climate science, it's it's political strategy. And I just don't, I have no idea what the right answer is, but I'd like to know.
2: A year or so after that interview, Caldera went to work for Bill Gates on climate. And that also made some people mad. But in the context of trying to answer this question, it made some sense to me. Getting a close-up peek at what makes billionaires tick seems pretty useful for trying to figure out how to change the world's power structures.
0: There are lots of ideas for how to attack climate change, from big, bold visions to obscure energy policy, local to national, and on and on. But driving the will to change, getting the people with power who benefit from extraction in the short term to care about those who suffer from it, that's a tougher nut to crack, especially in places like the US where people generally don't see models for less extractive ways of living. But as we heard in our last episode, healthier models abound in
5: indigenous communities all over the world. This year I was actually back in my uh, family's homelands during the um, salmon fishing season when the salmon ran up river. This
2: is Julian Brave NoiseCat, a First Nations writer and activist. He's spent quite a bit of time in the policy trenches here in the U.S. His family's home is in British Columbia.
5: After a number of years of very poor runs, which has had, there's a number of factors that have depleted the salmon runs. Um, climate change is one of them because sort of hotter waters off the Pacific. We had a really amazing gift of so many fish running up the river and you know we the way that we fish them is is with a dip net so we were pulling uh i went out and fished uh, three or four days now as back in the day you know that sort of supply of salmon was essential to getting our people through the winter you know salmon is an incredibly healthy food also, when they, you know, are, are consumed or uh, when they reach the spawning grounds and, and die, you know, their, their carcasses and all the sort of nutrients in them actually, you know, help the, the forests in the northwest, which are you know, sort of epic, massive rainforests, grow and actually, you know, support all sorts of other forms of life. So they're sort of this like keystone species, this like essential part of life in our, in our part of the world.
0: Julian recalled a conversation with an elder.
5: You know, she was basically saying that um, the river and, and the salmon running in the river and prayer are basically the things that like helped our people survive in the wake of just utter devastation in the face of colonization and the loss of so much of our of our land and so many of our people. And I and I think that she was obviously right about that, and that that sort of Network and relationship, that sort of economic system, which at the end of the day actually begins as a non-human economic system, a non-human sort of uh, system of reciprocity, where the salmon are, uh, you know, coming in very significant numbers and and nourishing just the entire land and earth in that area, is I think another model of how things. might Done.
0: Notice again the words Julian uses when he talks about the natural world in that place and among his people. Relationship, reciprocity, nurturing. We always need to be careful about romanticizing indigenous understandings, but there's something unmistakable there that our settler culture long ago lost sight of. We're going to get into this more in the next episode, but it reminds me of the degrowth movement in its various flavors the simple recognition of limits and our need to live within them
2: and that topic really freaks a lot of people out but objectively there are finite resources on this planet and we kind of need to learn how to not run out of them
0: and hello to not spew more toxins than the planet can absorb
2: The other option is an endless devotion to growth at all costs and as climate impacts increase what Canadian journalist Naomi Klein calls disaster capitalism.
1: Where in the aftermath of these shocking events like wars, economic crises and increasingly natural disasters, there is a kind of corporate feeding frenzy. That was certainly the case in New Orleans after Katrina. So I went there because Halliburton was there and, and, and Blackwater was there and Bechtel was there and the charter school movement was there and all of these private real estate developers were there and it was just like this insane feeding frenzy before the water had even you know drained from the streets there was this talk of how they were going to turn new orleans into this laboratory for a privatized frankly racially cleansed city and so that's what i was focusing on but when i was there i definitely had this feeling that i was looking at our collective future if we stay on the road we're on that it that we would be facing a future with more of these kinds of climate shocks intersecting with a weak and neglected public sphere overlaid with systems of white supremacy and then disaster capitalists swooping in with plans to make it all more unequal.
0: We've certainly seen more of that in the pandemic. The thing about rethinking our economic system and maybe embracing more of a degrowth approach is that contrary to what critics of that idea suggest, it does not necessarily mean leaving a bunch of the world behind or reverting to some primitive way of life. In fact, a lot of what we're told about the prosperity that fossil fuels supposedly bestow on all of us is just false.
6: How these industries constantly shift their narrative to suit the economic conjecture.
2: This is environmental economist Julia Steinberger. I talked to her right after she'd published a paper on the automotive industry, but she says the fossil fuel industry does this too. Really all extractive and polluting industries do.
6: So if there's an economic growth period, they're like, we need more cars, more automotive capacity, more roads, because we're preparing for growth. You need us to be ready for what's coming. Right. And if there's an economic downturn, it's like, you need to pour money into our industry because we're the industry that's going to restart the economy. And the reality is, is that they're completely inflexible. So they will die if there's no growth.
2: So this is basically what's happening with gas prices at the moment, too. When oil and gas prices slumped at the start of the pandemic because people weren't traveling and demand went down, the industry said the government must prop us up. And now they're pushing this story that gas prices are up because of President Biden's environmental policies, like his decision to kill the Keystone XL pipeline. When in reality, prices are up because U.S. companies reduced production and laid off workers in the pandemic and they've been slow to ramp up again because, of course, they like
0: the higher prices, at least for a while. Mm -hmm. It means bigger profits so they can make up that money they lost in the pandemic. So much of your work, Amy, has been about the many ways the oil and gas industry and their PR machines have been selling the public a bill of goods for a century. Here's another plug for Amy's true crime podcast about climate change, Drilled. But the upshot is that we need more regular people to see through all this brainwashing, right? Mm -hmm. And to see that our reliance on oil and gas and coal is in fact killing us and the only home we have. So if we need to cut emissions by 10% a year in the face of this enormously powerful, desperate to survive industry that has rigged the game in its own favor, what will that take?
2: What will it take to cut greenhouse gas emissions as fast as we need to cut them? It'll take some of everything, including a lot less consumption, especially of things like meat and dairy, the production of which is a huge source of methane and other emissions.
0: Those industries are also a leading cause of deforestation, including in the Amazon, as people clear land to raise more cattle for meat and leather, right?
2: That's right. And it's a disaster. When it comes to fossil fuels, which of course is a core problem, a lot of progressives have started to call for nationalizing the oil industry. Here's journalist Kate Aronoff explaining what that means and why it might be a good idea.
7: Something I've argued for is that the left should have, you know, its own kind of response this moment. Um, and be proposing a, a kind of state intervention um, into the fossil fuel industry, uh, which sort of protects workers, uh, looks to you know, make sure that it's not just CEOs who are getting kind of bailed out in this situation and ultimately to wind down production at the levels we know are necessary to deal with the climate crisis. So just to give some sort of basic context for, for nationalization, which I think can sound almost like this really big sort of maximalist demand, is just to say that, you know, insofar as state involvement in oil is, is very matter, of course, um, both in the U.S. and around the world, nationalization also has sort of a rich history in the United States and, and particularly for sort of navigating out of moments of crisis. So um, during World War II, uh, about a quarter of all manufacturing in the United States was nationalized. More recently, uh, the Bush administration nationalized airport security uh, just after 9-11, and that created you know, what, what we now know as TSA. And even you know, the sort of bailouts we're, we're accustomed to seeing of things like General Motors after the last crash and you know, any number of the bailouts now um, are a kind of nationalization in which the U.S. government just gives up its power um, and equity stake to, to you know, have a say over how, how companies are run.
2: And economist Julia Steinberger again on the industry's reliance on subsidies, which kind of makes it already very dependent on the government.
6: They're not the main industries. They're the main predator. They're the main extractor. So they're the main bloodsucker on the society, you know, and they'll just say whatever it is, like they'll cover up the reality. But the reality is the underlying reality is they want more subsidies all the time
0: that is a pretty easy policy change isn't it i mean just stop giving subsidies to the fossil fuel industry didn't biden promise to do that during his campaign
2: yeah. I mean, it kind of seems like step one to transition, right? Like maybe stop propping up the fossil fuel industry. Mm. And yes, Biden did promise that in his campaign. Now, of course, the American Petroleum Institute would tell you that they don't get any subsidies at all. But the International Monetary Fund estimates that globally, fossil fuel subsidies in 2020 were $5.9 trillion.
0: Oh, and that's from the IMF, not some lefty tree-hugging organization. So what has the Biden administration done about fossil fuel subsidies?
2: So far, really nothing. There, There was some hope that, you know, subsidies could make their way into budget reconciliation. That's this haggling that Congress is going through about the Build Back Better Act. But more than 50 other countries have reformed their subsidies since 2015. And while Biden hasn't necessarily delivered on his promise to be the climate president, he has scored some wins. Shutting down the Keystone XL pipeline was a really big one. So is installing Deb Holland, a member of the Laguna Pueblo, as the first native Secretary of the Interior. Julian Noisecat actually spent a lot of time pushing for her confirmation
5: that campaign for her representation in the cabinet and at the interior department, which manages about a fifth of the nation's landmass and lots of its natural resources, and also its relationship to uh, the 570 plus federally recognized American Indian Alaska native tribes across the country. In my mind, the reason to make the make the case for her wasn't just that, you know, that kind of representation was historic and, and overdue, uh, but also that, you know, by returning the management of this massive bureaucracy and its lands to a Native woman who actually went to Standing Rock and cooked green chili stew and tortillas for the water protectors, that we would be moving in the direction of, you know, Indigenous peoples, you know, could potentially be empowered as sort of those first stewards of the land through more formal policy measures.
0: Under Secretary Holland, the department has reinstated Bears Ears in Utah. That's a sacred site for several tribes in the region to national monument status. President Trump had revoked that status, opening the area up to mining. The federal government is also working on a plan to co-manage Tongass National Forest with tribes in southeast Alaska.
2: And like Julian said, Secretary Holland is already making steps toward improving the country's land policies and its relationships with sovereign tribal governments. Some of those steps aren't super noticeable if you don't know where to look. That's true of some other policy wins, too, says Leah Stokes, a UC Santa Barbara professor. She helped write what was supposed to be the most ambitious climate component of Biden's Build Back Better plan, the Clean Electricity Performance Program. It would have required utilities to speed up their transition away from fossil fuels and offered incentives for those making big strides and penalties for those falling behind. West Virginia coal baron and US Senator Joe Manchin insisted that lawmakers cut that program from the bill before he'd even consider it.
8: You know, when we lost the Clean Electricity Performance Program, that was a huge loss, really personally for me too because I had put so much of my time and energy into it. But the one thing that we did is by taking all the heat by being so much the center of the package on from the climate investments We distracted from some of the changes in other parts of the bill like the clean electricity tax credits and the package that we have here is really transformative and it goes for like 10 years. That's something that we could have never done, I don't think, if we didn't sort of have the sacrificial lamb of the Clean Electricity Performance Program. If uh, some of our enemies had more time to focus on attacking things, they probably would have gone after these tax credits. And so.
0: So she's calling these tax credits a big win. But that sounds like the kind of development that climate activists might dismiss as small potatoes.
2: It's true. Yeah. Um, So I asked Stokes to unpack this because it's one of those wonky policy details that actually matters a lot. In all of the justified criticism of oil and gas companies, we sometimes lose sight of the role that utilities have played in delaying the energy transition. And a lot of that obstruction over the years has had a lot to do with the way tax credits for clean energy work.
8: Yeah, it's very in the weeds, right? Like... I wrote a whole book about electric utilities and why they were anti-wind and solar and fighting all these bills. And I didn't even really understand this dynamic until I was working on this federal bill and I started to understand why utilities have been fighting wind and solar and proposing gas. It's partially because the incentives are wrong.
2: The biggest problem is that a government tax credit only works if a utility owes the government taxes. But a lot of local utility companies run by city governments or rural co-ops and even a lot of for-profit utilities don't actually pay much or anything in federal taxes. So a tax credit to produce more wind and solar energy just doesn't really offer them anything. There's no refund on taxes you don't pay. Leah says that's why private for-profit companies have built most of the wind and solar projects in the U.S. so far, because they can use those tax credits more easily. These private, independent power producers also typically have non-union workforces and pay their workers less.
8: And so one thing that the Build Back Better Act is going to do is make it so that you don't have to owe the federal government money in order to get support from the government to build wind and solar. That's because the tax credits will be turned into direct pay mechanisms. It's basically like saying they're a grant rather than a tax credit. So that means that utilities of all stripes will be able to build, own, and operate a lot more wind and solar. And they'll be able to actually make money off those projects. They'll be able to use union labor to build those projects. So the Build Back Better Act is going to really change those incentives and maybe start turning electric utilities into renewable energy builders.
0: Okay, so even without the Clean Electricity Performance Program, utilities might speed the transition because it benefits them to do so now, at least under this bill.
2: Right. And the more they build, the more the cost of renewables will come down. And here's a pretty encouraging bit of data. As of late 2021, in nearly half the world it's cheaper to build and operate new large-scale wind or solar plants than to run existing coal or gas-fired power plants. You know who said that? Noted tree-hugger blog Bloomberg. (laughs) Mm -hmm.
0: That is encouraging. But renewables still make up only about 20% of electricity generation in the United States. That's a long way from the 100% clean energy the Biden-Harris administration hopes to get to by 2035. And although coal has been on a steep decline in recent years, even with Senator Manchin fighting for it, gas seems pretty hard to get rid of.
2: True that. An increasing number of cities and counties all over the country are enacting bans on natural gas in new buildings. And just a quick note there that the term natural gas is always kind of being debated in the climate space. Most recently, folks are starting to call it either fossil gas or methane gas with a slight preference for methane gas because it apparently reads as the negative thing that it is. Mm. At any rate, these, these gas bands are part of the electrify everything movement. The idea is that with electric, we have a lot of power source options, but with gas, we're pretty locked into gas. And despite calling gas a bridge fuel, the industry really loves to build gas infrastructure we can never really get rid of. (laughs) But those bans have faced fierce opposition from fossil fuel companies and gas utilities. I met up with Heidi Harmon, the former mayor of San Luis Obispo, California, one of the first towns to approve a gas ban in the country. And
9: her experience was wild. So, the city of Berkeley had been the only city, I think, that had gone before us, and they had created a ban. And we created a slightly different pathway, but it basically it eliminated methane gas in new developments. So, the gas union and then SoCal Gas were directly involved, but also WISPA, um, Western States Petroleum Association. And they were very hardcore um, in terms of the misinformation that they were putting out there and really just stoking fear and mistrust, which is so heartbreaking, honestly, for for me, you know, as a local legislator. And the sort of misinformation and toxicity that was brought on by these front groups and by the gas union in particular, culminated in the gas union president threatening our community to busload in Uh, busloads of angry COVID-positive workers to contaminate the town.
0: What? (laughs) I mean...
9: (laughs) Yeah.
2: Just in case anyone was under the impression that these guys are just going to go quietly into the night. Uh, But you know what? That was at the start of the pandemic, and it was one of the first of these bans. And already now, there are more than 50 gas bans just in California alone. Mm.
0: All of that highlights the importance of actions at the local and state level. There's so much happening. The mostly gridlocked federal government is by no means the only game in town.
2: That's true. But I do want to call out a couple of huge elephants in the room, John. I am ready. Okay. There are two. Nuclear And lithium. Mm. Nuclear, as you know, has been very controversial for a long time and for good reason. No one wants a Chernobyl on their hands. But there's a whole new debate around it because when nuclear plants are shut down, especially if they're not yet at the end of their useful lives, they are generally replaced by coal or gas, a fossil fuel taking over for a zero emissions energy source. So that has a lot of folks in the climate space asking, should we take another look at nuclear or at least rethink the idea of closing a nuclear power plant as a net win for the environment? It's a really fraught conversation. And the Biden Energy Department has put some money into nuclear research and development.
0: Okay, so that's nuclear on lithium. We see these reports about shortages of the minerals and metals we need to build batteries for the (laughs) electrify-everything future, right? Isn't that what that's about?
2: It sure is. And this is where changing the power structure, not just the energy source, gets really important. Because so far, people have focused on just the energy source. You know, swapping out coal or gas for... Electric, solar, wind, things powered by batteries. But if we don't change anything else, then we're going to apply the same extractive colonial approach to the renewable energy industry as we did to the fossil fuel industry. Mm. And unfortunately, we're kind of already seeing that happening This is almost too on the nose, but I happened to be at a Line 3 resistance camp in Minnesota in November reporting a story, and folks there were packing up to head to their next fight, a lithium mine on indigenous land in Nevada tied to the renewable energy space.
0: Mm. This is where we really need sweeping policy change that would curb extractive behavior, or at least not incentivize it. But even... In its most ambitious versions, uh, the Build Back Better Act was never going to be the Green New Deal, was it, Amy? Now everybody's crossing all their fingers and toes that even this weaker version can pass.
2: Yep. As we're recording this in December 2021, the Build Back Better Act has passed the House but faces the much bigger challenge of getting through the Senate. It remains to be seen whether Senator Joe Manchin will make good on his promise to vote yes on the bill if his colleagues remove certain items. Leah Stokes, the policy expert we heard from earlier, is watching closely for a couple of reasons. So, so
8: speak, and I am hoping and thinking and wishing and praying every day that um, Joe and Joe can meet up and, and get this bill across the finish line. Yeah. Some people ask me, when am I going to take my maternity leave? And I say, when Senator Manchin lets me. In August
2: 2021, amidst all of this political wrangling, Stokes gave birth to twins.
0: It always seems to be one step forward, two steps back. Or to be more positive about it, two steps forward, one and a half back. Incremental change. That might have been up to the challenge 30 years ago, but isn't now.
2: Exactly. And that's why a lot of people are looking instead to the courts. So we talked last episode about rights of nature cases, but there are some two dozen climate liability cases in the United States right now, too. Plus half a dozen fraud cases against oil companies for misleading the public on climate. People seem to be filing more of these all the time. Tamara Tolles O'Loughlin, she's an attorney, activist and CEO and president of the Environmental Grantmakers Association. She says the judiciary has often pushed policy farther than the government wants to go. So it feels like
10: there are amongst those different buckets cases where uh, we are focusing on what's already been lost what it will cost to fix
2: what's uh, just to keep the status quo, which isn't good enough for most folks. And some of these cases target the government, some the oil and gas companies, some allege fraud, others make liability claims. But all the goals are clear, accountability and new paths forward. O'Laughlin focuses a broad intersectional lens on climate that she would like to surface more in policy debates. The Green New Deal pushed that idea mainstream in a big way. In 2019, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Senator Ed Markey released a 14-page resolution that created a framework for what they called the Green New Deal.
11: And what this resolution is, is doing is saying this is our first step. Our first step is to define the problem and define the scope of the solution. And so we're here to say that small incremental policy solutions are not enough. There is no justice and there is no combating climate change without addressing what has happened to indigenous communities. That means that there is no fixing our economy without addressing the racial wealth gap. That means that we are not going to transition to renewable energies without also transitioning frontline communities and coal communities into economic opportunity as well. That is what this is about. It is comprehensive. It is thoughtful. It is compassionate and it is extremely economically strategic as well.
0: Contrary to popular belief, the Green New Deal is not a defined set of policies. It is not a bill. It's a vision and a framework for pulling climate into every realm of federal action. When it was first announced, extreme reactions followed on the right and the establishment left.
5: All right, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez says her Green New Deal will save the planet. In exchange, we just give up cars and airplanes and rebuild every structure in the United States. It would be basically the end of civilization if 85% of the world's and also 85% of the US's energy in the form of coal, oil and natural gas were phased out over the next 10
3: years.
11: Are you offended that um, Speaker Pelosi called this the green dream? No, I think it is a green dream.
3: A
2: lot of them seem to think addressing inequality was some kind of a distraction from climate solutions rather than central to any effective solution. But when you hear Rihanna Gunn Wright, an architect of the Green New Deal, explain it, that idea just seems ridiculous. Here she is breaking it down on Democracy Now.
12: People like to say climate change will kill us all, but the truth is climate change will kill some people first. Um, And so there's a moral imperative to make sure that in the green transition, the same people who bear the brunt of our reliance on fossil fuels are not the same people who uh, the green transition is being built on their backs. So that's one. And then the second is that income inequality and climate change are linked, not only because we have an extractive economy, but because there's a growing body of evidence that, especially in rich countries, the higher you have incoming quality, the more emissions that you have. The mechanisms are not clear, and there's lots of theories about it, but the evidence is clear. And so, if you're going to tackle climate change and tackle it in a way that's sustainable, you have to be talking about inequity. You have to be talking about racial equity as well, because those are drivers, right? Um, And the ways that we think about addressing that is making sure that the policies are cross-cutting.
2: More recently, an increasing number of people, Tamara Tolles O'Loughlin included, have been talking about reparations and defunding the police in the context of equitable climate policy, too. And when O'Loughlin talks about climate reparations, she doesn't limit her vision to the international level. She considers the U.S. too.
0: We're going to talk more next time about the relationship between climate action and reparations for slavery. But Tamara O'Laughlin points to the sacrifice zones this country has long maintained. The fact that a region in this country goes by the name Cancer Alley. That power brokers have decided it's acceptable to pollute the air and water of some people and not others.
10: These things form a parallel because the system of colonialism created alternate laws, alternate systems of liability, and then totally obscured the fact that people's labor should be paid in means that they agree to, and so that basic tenet of a contract was totally violated. And in fact, it's even worse because the future has been compromised. People's present health is destroyed. Their future chances of, of uh, ever achieving health have been destroyed, and their right to work the land, uh, drink clean water, or have fresh air, and not be subject to death at an earlier age, all of that has been exchanged in a bargain for some services none of these people said they wanted. And so the places where a global loss and damage conversation, like saying COP, would come up. And a U.S.-based discussion around reparations and climate reparations is that they're both the subject of what happens when unchecked colonialism uh, cannibalizes the very thing it needs to survive, and those folks are demanding restitution. So they're care and repair.
2: All of this overlaps with the movement to defund the police. It's another policy area where even liberals can resist, at least at first, seeing the connection between climate change and something like prisons. O'Loughlin lays it out in terms so simple, it's hard to separate them. If we're going to take on a carceral
10: state, it has to involve an environmental lens because they both come from the same flaw in logic, which is that some people can die so other people have stuff. Some people become erased so other people get a pedestal. Um, Some folks have lives that matter, so other folks do not. Like I think all of those things are places where the vast system that we have built of exchanges and capital and resources and who matters and who doesn't and who has a right to a voice and how far people go under the jail is pretty similar to the idea that some folks live in places where the water is no good. And some people live in places where the air is poor, even though as human beings, we cannot live without either.
0: Listen to the echoes from our early episodes, right, Amy? Our culture of domination in its many forms. The white patriarchal West and its thingification of so many people and of the non-human natural world.
2: And on climate, criminal justice, and every other social justice issue, another debate is growing louder. Is it even possible to generate change from within this system? Or do we need to tear it down and start over?
0: How do you make these changes happen in a society, talking about the U.S. here, that is far from truly functioning as a democracy and a country in which our very partial, badly hobbled democratic institutions are under systematic attack and might be gone in a few years, the way things are going? But even with all these barriers to change, when you talk about tearing down the system, speaking for myself, some kind of armed revolution doesn't look very uh, appealing either.
2: Yeah, agreed. Listen, I'm a middle-aged mom, and I would very much like to pass on any violent revolution or second civil wars that some people seem to be pining for. Yeah, So I saw Max Berger, who's a longtime political campaigner and grassroots organizer, tweeting about this in ways that didn't instantly terrify me. And I wanted to ask him to talk to me about it some more. So Berger's a really interesting person because throughout his career, he's moved between working from inside the system and agitating to replace it. He campaigned for Howard Dean back in the early 2000s, but he also helped organize the Occupy Wall Street movement. He worked on Elizabeth Warren's presidential campaign, but also co-founded Momentum, the activism incubator that birthed the sunrise movement.
13: With that caveat that I'm I'm still early and trying to figure out how to talk about and think about this stuff.
2: Max wanted to be clear that he doesn't have a fully baked vision yet of what's next, after acknowledging that there might just be no fixing this system. But it is something that he's starting to think through.
13: If you just were to step back and look at the us as a country it would be very clear you know the current constitutional arrangement is not long for this world you, you know you have a significant subset of the population particularly the white population although not only that is really terrified about the transition away from a white majority population to a multiracial majority and uh, that's happening in the context of, you know, world historic inequality, right? So you, you really do have the conditions for ethno-nationalist authoritarian politics. Call it fascist, call it ethno-nationalist authoritarian, call it white supremacist, a politics in which there is a significant number of people that are willing to use violence uh, and and do not really subscribe to the beliefs that are required of participating in a democracy because they're afraid of losing power within that democracy to other ethnic groups. Um, That's the kind of beginning of my analysis here.
2: He went on to say that those reactionaries committed to preserving a white supremacist America are not nearly a majority of the country, but they have taken over the Republican Party in the Trump era and thus maintained and increased their power. That
0: will surprise no one listening to this show. (laughs) Two seasons of Seen on Radio, the Seeing White series and The Land That Never Has Been Yet, have documented this and put it in historical context both seasons, and for that matter, our season on Patriarchy, season three, I dare say are pretty good precursors to this season that help explain the political moment we're living through.
2: Berger notes that the Electoral College, in addition to making it possible for the winner of the popular vote to lose the election, effectively allows 25 to 40 percent of the population to govern because of the United States' two-party system.
13: We're not going to see the multiracial majority have an opportunity to turn its will into law in the next 10 to 15 years. And I think the amount of tension that that will generate will break the political system. Uh, I, I cannot imagine a situation in which the multiracial majority takes that lying down. And I also don't think that the Um, white nationalist plurality is going to become less vociferous in their opposition to multiracial democracy. Our political system is basically designed as poorly as possible to manage that kind of a demographic transition because the two-party system collapses all divisions in society into a zero-sum, all-or-nothing, competitive, existential conflict. And when that gets racialized or ethnicized, it can become dangerous very quickly.
2: The country is bitterly polarized and the structure of the U.S. government has what political scientists call a profusion of veto points, meaning it's just unbelievably difficult for a bill to become a law. That only adds to the tension.
13: The example I always use is, is gun control. And um, after name a massacre, people always ask, if this stuff is 85% approval rating, why can't it pass? Uh, and the truth of the matter is that very little can pass. Very, very few laws make it through the uh, our system. And there's a, there's a stat that the United States is the only system that has a separately elected executive branch um, that is not at some point Collapse into dictatorship, because in presidential systems, systems with a separate, uh, separately elected uh, executive, what happens is there's a conflict between the president and the Congress. There's some external crisis that requires action, and the Congress isn't capable of or unwilling to respond. And then the executive takes the authority to do so without the approval of the legislature, and once that is broken, it's very hard to take back. Um, And I think some version of that is more or less inevitable in the next five years. The way I say it is like, look, we're going to get a new political system. The question is, does it happen before authoritarianism and civil war or after? And I would love for it to be before. (laughs) You know, as an American, I would love to not have to experience those things.
0: Well, shit. (laughs) The scenarios Max is laying out there uh, do cost me sleep sometimes, too.
2: Yeah, same. I couldn't help but think about the anti-protest laws being passed amidst all of this, too. And the police shootings and the incredibly unjust verdicts. Things are, are really starting to boil over.
0: The fascism is thick in the air for anyone who's half awake.
2: But I did find talking to Max Berger about this stuff weirdly comforting, although terrifying (laughs) at the same time. It sort of confirmed everything I've been thinking. And, you know, it scares me for that same reason. I mean, talk about an external crisis that requires action that Congress is unwilling to respond to. Hello, climate emergency. Yeah.
0: Amy, I'm going to ask you the question I know every climate person hates. Does anything in this scenario give you hope?
2: (laughs) You know I'm all about that post-hope life, John. (laughs) Um, That also doesn't mean that I've gone full Doomer. I I tend to think of it more as building resolve and resilience. Grit, maybe. We're living through a tough time. There's no denying that. And we need the courage to continue doing what we know is right. Ojibwe attorney and activist Tara Hauska really struck me with her thoughts on this front. She talked to me at that resistance camp I mentioned. She runs that camp in Minnesota, and we sat in my car together on a cold day in
8: November.
14: If you're out here with a resistance camp and you're growing food and you're creating community that is in very intentional in balance and inclusivity and pushing back against patriarchy into a balance between the masculine and feminine, like a different, but actually familiar old way of being with each other. Then you're suddenly labeled as (laughs) all kinds of things, right? Like you're labeled as radicals. You're labeled as antithetical to a way of life, right? Like you're not complying, like what's your problem, but those are all pushbacks, right? I think even something like mutual aid is a pushback against an entirely different systemic way of dealing with things, which is... Mutual aid is increasingly popular these days. It's just what it sounds like,
2: one group of people assisting another.
14: Mutual aid is, you know, a radical act, right? It's a quote-unquote radical act, but it's, no, I'm going to take what I have, even though it's not very much, and I'm going to try to help as many people as I possibly can and see them as people. I'm going to care about them, and I'm not going to look at them as numbers. It's so critical and important to at least trying to be the people we want to be. You know, Even if we're past the point of no return, don't we wanna at least have tried as hard as we could to build the world that we wanted and to be able to give the young people who are coming up the world that they want, which is obviously not the one that's existing, right? Like they're pushing back really hard all over the globe. You got teenagers that are telling grown adults, grown politicians, How to do their jobs. (laughs) Yeah. Because they haven't quite gotten to the point of like compromising everything.
0: You know, Amy, where Tara ends up there feels like a very nice segue to where we're going in the next episode, our final episode of this series. And that is looking at a change in culture.
2: Right, because all the progressive policy in the world can't really happen unless people get behind it. And that can't happen without the large-scale social shift that Ken Caldera was talking about at the start of this episode. So you're going to take us on that journey next time, right, John?
0: (laughs) Something like that, yes. Um, And it's a tall order. But yeah, next time... How do you take on a capitalist, white supremacist, patriarchal, ecologically suicidal society and build a different world? How do we imagine our way to real, lasting repair? Our script editor for season five is Cheryl Duvall. Music in this episode by Lily Hayden, Kim Carroll, Chris Westlake, Leslie Barber, Cora Miran. Good Night, Lucas, and Maytar. Music consulting by Joe Augustine of Narrative Music. We post transcripts on our website, CNonRadio.org. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, at Radio. Amy is on Twitter, at Amy Westervelt. The show is distributed by PRX and comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.